We're going to turn our attention to the Word of God this morning uh, because it's good, it's powerful, and it's true. And by the Word of God, and only by the Word of God, do we hear from God, right? That's where we hear and we receive from God. And so we turn our attention there. And we ask that God may continue to, to, to bless the preaching of His Holy Word today. Not the words that I have to say, but his words, that the, the Spirit would speak his words to our hearts today that we might be able to hear. We're in uh, chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. Last week we considered Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, this week we're going to be lurk, looking at verses 12 through 25. So we've got a, a bit of a, a chunk of scripture to work through. And so I'm going to ask you if you're able to please stand with me as you turn to Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 25 for the reading of God's word this morning and our passage to, uh, to preach on and to meditate on. Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 25. Mark writes, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching to them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. For if, if you have anything, anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven might forgive you, your trespasses. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. It's, uh, it's interesting um, <clears throat> studying this passage this week. Uh, maybe you've read this one before and thought, what in the world is going on? Uh, our passage this morning is widely recognized by every single commentary I considered and looked at as one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire book of Mark. There's a lot going on. It's hard to understand what's happening. So Jesus finds a fruitless tree and he curses it. 
But it's, it's difficult to understand why would Jesus do this? Why would he curse a fruitless tree? Well, here, here's a few reasons this, this passage is difficult. First, this is the first and only miracle, not just in Mark's gospel, but in all the gospels, a miracle that is destructive. Jesus curses the tree, and then we're told in verse 20 that when the disciples pass by the, the tree, the whole thing is withered down even to its roots. It is completely dead. In previous situations, Jesus performed many miracles where he provided or produced something, like a miracle catch of fish, or the feeding of the 5,000, or the feeding of the 4,000. In John's gospel, Jesus even transforms water, plain old water, into the best wine anybody's ever had. But here, in our passage today, Jesus curses something. He curses something. An unfruitful fig tree. But this isn't as troubling as Mark's comment, so Jesus curses something, and that's, that's bad. I mean, that, that's something we're not used to seeing Jesus do, cursing. Jesus doesn't typically, normally Jesus blesses and not curses. But if, if that isn't troubling enough, um, it becomes more troubling because Mark mentions in verse 13, he found nothing but leaves on this tree, and the reason he cursed it uh, was because it didn't produce fruit, but Mark tells us, for it was not the season for figs. It wasn't even the season for figs. And Jesus got upset and cursed the tree. Now it's, it's important to note that Mark is the only gospel writer to point out this, this final detail. It wasn't the fig season. He's the only one to point that out. All four gospels have this, have uh, the cleansing of the temple. Not all four have the, actually none of them have the, uh, the, this episode with the tree. But Mark points out that it wasn't season for figs. Naturally, our reasonable minds ask, well, if it, if it wasn't the season for figs, then why was Jesus even looking for figs? Why was he looking for fruit when it wasn't the season for fruit? Why was he looking for figs when he knows it's not the season for figs? Wouldn't Jesus know better? Wouldn't he know that there aren't any figs on the tree? He grew up in Israel, surely, surely by now. He's, he's likely 33 years of age, according to Luke. Like, by now, surely, he would know when fig season is and that the Passover, the spring, is not the time to find ripe figs. More than that, Jesus is not only the Son of Man, he's not only an Israelite, but he's the Son of God. Jesus, in one sense, created fig trees. Right? Of all people, Jesus should know when figs are in season. But even this is not the most troubling aspect of our narrative. The most troubling part is Jesus' perceived attitude of the whole scene. Mark seems to be portraying Jesus as a selfish, spoiled brat. Jesus doesn't get what he wants and he throws a little temper tantrum and curses the tree. Right? If you've ever been around little kids that don't get what they want, you have a good image of what this looks like, right? They, they throw a temper tantrum. Mark opens with Jesus traveling back from Bethany, where he and the 12 previously stayed the night before, probably at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. 
The text tells us Jesus was hungry. This makes sense. The road from Bethany to Jerusalem was about two miles, a decent walk. And we're talking the Mount of Olives, right? And so Bethany's on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So you got to come up and over or around the Mount of Olives. And then you go down the Kidron Valley and you head into Jerusalem. So it's a bit of up and down and it's two miles. And Jesus is making this trek. And Mark tells us he was hungry. Verse 13 says, Jesus spotted a fig tree in the distance, fully leafed out. This is, again, notable because at the Passover, um, fig trees, which is in the spring, fig trees are just now starting to bud and beginning to leaf, right? This is, this is early. Jesus is looking at a fig tree and he sees it fully leafed out. That means this tree has leafed out probably early. It's, it's ahead of its uh, seasonal schedule. So Jesus approaches the tree, and he looks for figs to eat, but of course he finds none. Then Mark tells us the reason Jesus didn't find any is because it wasn't the season, and we've already talked about this. But then Jesus comes, uh, but then comes Jesus' shocking reaction in verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus curses the fruitless tree. Lest there be any confusion regarding Jesus' tone, like, so maybe, maybe because tone doesn't always come across in the text, and maybe, maybe Jesus was saying it as politely as it could be said, lest there be any mistake that Jesus said these words gently or softly, or maybe he said it instructively, Mark clarifies Jesus' intent through Peter's astonished observation and reaction when in verse 21, they pass by the tree once again the following day. Peter says, um, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. It's, it's dead. From the roots up, it is dead. A tree doesn't die that quickly. But because Jesus cursed it, Jesus brought the death to that life of the tree. That tree is withered from the ground up. This is troubling. Why is it troubling? Because this isn't like the Jesus you and I know, right? This isn't a Jesus, a picture of Jesus that we're, we're super comfortable with. It's, it's interesting because about every commentary I read had a different explanation of what was going on here and uh, trying to reconcile the fact that Jesus isn't um, capricious. He, he's not kind and then all of a sudden he can lose his temper and just curse things to death. That's not the Jesus we're used to. So what's, what's going on? How are we to understand this? I think the key to understand what's going on in this first scene of our passage uh, is that it's helpful to, to, to note the, the entire literary structure of the unit we're looking at this morning. Understanding literary structure in Scripture uh, helps shed light. Um, in other words, Scripture writers didn't just write content. They formed their content to communicate as well. And that's the case here with Mark. Mark opens his story with the fig tree, and then he moves on to Jesus cleansing the temple, and then he returns back to the narrative on the fig tree. We have seen this kind of narrative structure before in Mark's gospel, uh, and many scholars have, uh, have sophisticated names for it. Um, probably the, the most popular is the Markin sandwich, which sounds delicious, but is, it's just not. It's not a Big Mac or anything. 
Uh, the Mark and Sandwich. He sandwiches two narrative texts, and in between those narrative texts, he introduces another narrative text. Uh, a, a more technic, technical or appropriate name would uh, be for this an interpolation. Mark is doing an interpolation. He's, he's a series of text with a different text in the middle. Mark used this text or this technique previously in chapter 5 with the story of Jairus, uh, his pleading for his, his dying daughter's life. Jesus uh, goes to heal the sick daughter, but before he gets there, he encounters a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, right? So the point of the story is Jairus's daughter interrupted by the hemorrhaging woman and then ends with the healing or actually Jesus raising uh, Jairus's daughter back to life. Other interpolations is Mark chapter 3. Uh, Jesus' family, they are looking for him. Uh, it starts and ends with that. They go in and they say, we think he's mad. right? They're, they're trying to get to Jesus. The parable of the sower in chapter 4. And then in chapter 6, the sending out of the twelve and John the Baptist. And then we will encounter more Markan sandwiches or interpolations. Chapter 14 and 15 as well have a, actually 14 has about three of them. So Mark uses this literary strategy as an interpretive lens. He's not just doing this. Some scholars um, even suggested that Mark just did, had no idea what he was doing, and he was a ter terrible storyteller. And so he, uh, he just is kind of schizophrenic as he's telling these stories, switching from story, forgetting where he was at, and returning. I don't think that's what's going on. Mark knows what he's doing. More than that, the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. And this is the inspired word of God. And the inspired word of God is not just the content, but the structure. And so we see that here in Mark's gospel. So, how does this structure actually help us interpret this passage? Well, <clears throat> it helps us with this problem we're facing with Jesus cursing the tree. First, it is helpful to understand, before we get to the structure, it's helpful to understand just uh, naturally or in Middle Eastern fig tree horticulture, what's going on, right? There, there's just some background information that can be helpful. Um, I've been to Israel a couple of times, but I've never been there in the spring. Uh, I've only been there in the fall when the figs were either being harvested or had already been harvested. And they are delicious. They are, um, I think I was told, they're actually the sweetest fruit on earth, uh, figs are. Uh, in the spring, when Passover happens, and in our setting of the passage, uh, the fig trees, as I already said, are budding, and they're beginning to leave out. I, I'm told, I was told, when this happens, when the fig trees begin to bud and begin to leaf out, is when they begin to produce nodules, which will become the ripe fruit. These unripe figs, or in Hebrew, pagim, these pagim, they actually are edible. They're not, they're not very sweet. Um, I've heard they're not, I've never had one, but I've heard they're not very, they're actually not very tasty. Um, <clears throat> they're definitely not as sweet, sweet as the ripe figs, or in Hebrew, the bakarut, the bakarut. So two different names for the two different phases that these figs go through. Perhaps Jesus was looking for these pagaim, or the unripe figs. But, probably in light of Mark's sandwich, in light of the literary structure, 
Mark, Mark actually intends a more theological interpretation. It, it, it's helpful to note that the, the prophets, uh, notably and often, compared Israel to fig trees or to ripe fig fruit. Like in Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 29, Hosea 2, Hosea 9, Joel 1, Micah 7, Israel is compared to the fruitfulness of fig trees and to the fig itself. Most often these prophetic metaphors are anticipating God's judgment on Israel for Israel not bearing fruit. So, as informed biblical readers, we already have a theological backdrop tipping us off that there might be more going on here than a temper tantrum from Jesus. Additionally, prophets not only declared their prophetic message, but often, not as often as their proclamation, but, but sometimes prophets also dramatized their prophetic message. Well, they dramatize it? They, they acted it out. What do I mean? Well, take, for example, Isaiah 20. The Lord tells Isaiah to walk around naked and barefoot in Israel like captives to illustrate his prophetic message of how Assyria was going to overthrow, defeat the nations of Egypt and Cush. And they were going to be led out like captives, naked and barefoot. Therefore, Judah should not look to Egypt or Cush for rescue against the impending Assyrian invasion. Or Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to make a clay model of Jerusalem, a miniature clay model of Jerusalem, and then to lay siege on it. Prophesying Babylon's certain siege and defeat and destruction of Jerusalem. Hosea was instructed by the Lord to marry a harlot as a message to Israel. Even Ezekiel's wife, her death, was a message to Israel. These are living parables. Instead of only speaking a parable or a prophetic message, the prophets would act them out in real life. Because Mark is intentionally sandwiching the cleansing of the temple with these two narratives of a cursing fig tree, Mark is cueing us in that Jesus, is, is, is he's not losing his temper like a selfish child, but he's pronouncing judgment on the temple as the greatest prophet, the messianic king and the sovereign Lord. In other words, this fig tree is a living parable. Jesus doesn't lose his temper, rather he curses the fig tree on purpose to communicate a message specifically to his disciples and that's why he does it before the disciples and at the end of the Mark and Sandwich he also comes back to the disciples and teaches them about what this means. So my proposition this morning is God hates false fruit. God hates false fruit but delights in true fruit. God hates false fruit but delights in true fruit. I want to I take us straight to my first point. My first point is this. Jesus is looking for fruit, not fancy foliage. Jesus is looking for fruit, not fancy foliage. 
So what, what is the message of the tree? What is the message of the cursed fig tree? I think the message is this. The tree is giving an appearance of life. It's giving an appearance of vitality. It's fully leafed out, and it's done so early. The show of leaves portrays a sense of health and of life. But when one draws near, when Jesus pulls in close, the true evidence of life, vitality, and health, that is whether a, a tree is producing fruit, when Jesus draws near, he finds it empty, lifeless. He's hungry. He's wanting. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, Jesus actually tells a parable uh, about a fruitless fig tree. In his parable, the owner of the vineyard, uh, in which this, this fig tree is growing, uh, the owner issues a verdict on the, on the fruitless uh, fig tree, the fruitless fig tree. The owner says to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Therefore, cut it down. Cut it down. It's, it's worthless. If a fig tree doesn't produce fruit, it's worthless. Why should it even use up the ground, the owner of the vineyard says. Similarly, Jesus' message to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation gets directly to the same point. No longer talking about trees, but about his people. Jesus says in chapter 3 of Revelation, he says, I know your work. I've seen your fruit. Or in our fig analogy, actually, I've seen your leaves. I've seen all the work that you're doing, and I've examined it up close. I've, I've looked for your fruit. You have the reputation. You, you look alive. You've got a lot of leaves. You've got a lot of foliage. From a distance, you look great. You look alive. You look like you have vitality. You look amazing. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're fruitless. Then the Lord warns a little further on. If you do not wake up, if you do not produce life, I will come against you, says the living God. Jesus is not impressed with our religious displays. You and I can easily be impressed and fooled by grand displays of behavior, intellect, wit, wealth, and a litany of other outward expressions. But listen, Jesus isn't fooled. Jesus isn't impressed. God doesn't see as we see. He isn't impressed with what impresses us. He isn't easily distracted. Like David, for example, the, the prophet Samuel is sent to, to Jesse, David's dad's house, sent to Jesse's house to anoint a new king over Israel. The prophet Samuel is immediately, immediately, maybe he walks through the door and he, he beholds Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse. And he says, that's a man's man right there. <laughs> that's the dude. He's the next king. How could he not be? He's tall. He's broad. He's good looking. Every quality that a king needs, right? Yet, the Lord whispers, 
to Samuel's heart. In verse 7 of chapter 16, he says, Do not look on his appearances or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, man looks at foliage, but God looks for fruit. David was a man after God's own heart, and God was pleased with David. Even though Jesse, his own father, didn't think of Jesse when Samuel comes to feast with them and says, bring all your boys. He, think, he, he brings all of his kids except for David. Wee little David. Insignificant David. Shepherd boy David. And he's overlooked. But not by God. Saul, the first king of Israel, was a man who was head and shoulders above the rest. But it turns out he was only a big tree with lots of leaves and no fruit. So the Lord cut him down. What about you? What about you? What what kind of tree are you? Are you full of fancy leaves? Do you consider yourself a big tree, an important tree? Do other trees look to you? Are they impressed by you? Are you busy focusing your energy, your time, your resources, growing big, broad, beautiful leaves like reputation or advancing in a career or a large social network? Do you know a lot? Do you pride yourself on what you can do, what you know, on what other people think about you? But in the context of our passage today, Mark isn't talking about those kind of leaves in particular. The context of our story is focused on the temple and on Israel's religious foliage. So maybe a more pertinent or maybe more pertinent questions are, how's your religion? What is, is it based on what you know, how much you know or how well you know it? Is your theology impressive? Is it tight? Do you have it all dialed in? Is it, is it watertight so that no one can uh, poke a hole in it? D- do you flash your theology or hide behind it like the guilty pair in the garden? Do you pride yourself on how much scripture you've memorized or how much you pray or your avoidance of sin? H- how are your daily disciplines? Are, are they fall- flawless? Are you in every day? Like I remember when I, was a, when I was younger, new in the faith, I had checklists. I love checklists, right? Because you get to, you, you get, you get to put that mark. I have, I have it on my app now, and it's even more gratifying because it goes, bing, every time. And I, sometimes I do something, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't on my checklist. Bing! It's because of dwarfing, right? I love the checklists, right? But God's not a checklist, He can't be a checklist. It doesn't matter what you do. God doesn't care about your behavior. He cares about your heart. Because out of your heart will flow your adoration. Your behavior follows your heart. Do you look nice? Do you act nice? Do you talk nice? 
Listen to me. I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should, everybody should just stop all of these. I'm not saying you should have no theological acumen at all. I'm not saying you should give up on spiritual disciplines. I'm not saying that. Hear, hear me rightly. Those things are good, but they're not good in and of themselves. And just because something is good doesn't mean it's the best thing for you. You don't want to be a fruitless tree with lots of foliage. Look, all of us are busy uh, growing something. We're all growing something. We're actually growing a lot of different things. But the currency of this kingdom, this kingdom, the kingdom of Adam, the currency of this kingdom is bountiful, showy leaves. You and I, we, we tend to be impressed by fancy foliage, but make no mistake, God is not. His kingdom, he values fruit, real fruit, real fruit, not, not fake fruit. It's not going up and stapling plastic apples and figs and bananas to your tree to make it look fruitful. He wants organic fruit to be generated because of the life that is in you. Ripe fruit. God is not fooled by our fancy foliage. And God does not look as the world looks. The world, we like to view things far off. We like to, we like to look at things at a distance and say, man, that is impressive. Right? Jesus sees the tree from a distance and he, it looks full. And, and if you were to, uh, I've stood on the Mount of Olives looking over at the Temple Mount and um, I, I wanted to create an app where you could hold your, your phone or I have an iPad, hold your, obviously I have an iPad, hold your iPad up and it can do like that 3D thing where it like takes a picture and does that LADAR whatever magic happens and it, it, it superimposes the temple there uh, because our guide was telling us about it and there's the, uh, the, the Muslim mosque there and the uh, whatever it's called. It's not a mosque, but the, you know what I'm talking about. And the temple was three times larger than that, right? It was impressive, and it was wrapped in gold, and it was polished stone. It was beautiful, beautiful. It was a, it was a wonder to behold. But that's all it was. It was a wonder to behold. That's it. It was an impressive structure, one that far off looked amazing. And we like to view things far off. But Jesus draws near and he inspects our fruit. And we must be careful that we don't mistake leaves for fruit, foliage for fruitfulness. The, the, the fig tree in Mark, uh, Mark 11 had a lot of leaves but no fruit, so Jesus judged it. He cursed it. He called it what it really was. Simply a showy, dead tree. Man, don't let that be you. Don't be a showy, dead tree. Right? We only get one shot at this life. You're never going to have today again. Ever. Today is the day to know Him. To seek him, to bear fruit, to seek his life. Or you're just left with uh, 
your showy foliage. Let's consider the middle portion of our Markin sandwich. My second point, the word of God exposes false fruit. The word of God exposes false fruit. Look at verses 15 and following. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out all of those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. It's important to, rem- to remember, we've said this a number of times um, from all of us who preach up here, Jesus is the word of God in flesh, right? Don't mis- make any mistakes. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. Last week we considered that King Jesus had come. He arrived, his triumphal entry. Jesus has come. Jesus is not only the king of kings, but John says he's the very word of God. One thing that both kings or that the king and the word of God do is they judge the hearts of men. Jesus again enters Jerusalem and he heads straight for the temple. He was there in our text. He was there yesterday at the climax, climax of his triumphal entry. Mark eleven eleven. Mark ends, if you remember, Jesus in the temple. It felt a little anticlimactic. Mark says, he entered the temple and when he had looked around at everything, he went out. He looked around, saw everything and went out. What a weird way to end his triumphal entry, right? But we talked about it last week, that Jesus, when he went in and he looked at everything, he wasn't simply sightseeing, saying, oh, that's pretty, oh, that's neat, oh, how cute. That's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was assessing, he was analyzing, he was examining the fruit up close. How do we know? Because... How do do we know this is what Jesus was doing? How do we know he was examining the fruit of the temple? Because the very next day he heads straight for the temple again and renders his verdict by flipping tables, driving out those who sold and bought and not allowing anyone to carry goods. The actual word is vessel um, through the temple area. So, So what in the world's going on here? Well, to understand what's happening, it's helpful to understand a little bit about the layout and background Uh, of the temple, of the temple mount, but the temple structure as well. So the temple mount is a big, huge stone platform that sits on top of a mountain, right? Mount Zion. And the temple sits on Mount Zion, right? And and Herod had, had, uh, in, in about 20 BC, had started a construction project to expand the temple, not just the temple, but the whole temple mount. And so he had huge stones, huge stones, like 12 feet by uh, 11 feet by 12 feet thick, brought in to create a bigger platform, a bigger mount, uh, temple mount area. And then he worked on the temple. He increased the size of the temple, the beauty of the temple, so that uh, his goal was to make it more spectacular, to have more glory, more wonder, more awe, more prestige than even Solomon's temple. And many would say that's exactly what he did. At the center of all the activity on the Temple Mount was the temple itself. And in it was the Holy of Holies, where only one man, the high priest, was allowed to enter once a year to offer atonement. Outside of this area, so the the Holy of Holies in the temple, outside of that, 
you kind of get the picture here, concentric circles. Outside of that was the, the court of the priests, where only priests were allowed to receive, prepare, and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. So holy of holies, court of the priests, outside of that was the court of Israel. The court of Israel was where only circumcised Jewish men were allowed to be. Another circle outside of that was the court of women. And then the final court, the furthest court, was known as the court of the Gentiles. This is where God-fearing Gentiles could draw near to God. And in our narrative, this is exactly where the merchants, the money changers, and those who bought and sold ceremonially clean animals... This is where they were conducting business. They actually filled the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, with their business transaction. King Jesus, the very word of God, enters and judges the fruit of Israel, and Israel is found wanting and guilty. How do we know? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus uses the word of God. He uses the word of God to expose the fruit of Israel. Jesus quotes from two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 56, 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. These two scriptures expose the two fruits Jesus is actually looking for in Israel, but Israel is found lacking. Uh, well, what, what fruit is Jesus looking for? I, I think we can see it explicitly uh, in chapter 12 of Mark, uh, where we're given the answer. In chapter 12, verse 26, Mark is, or, uh, Jesus is confronted uh, by a scribe who asks him, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? What's your take on that? That was a common question for rabbis. What's the greatest commandment? To which Jesus gives a twofold reply. Love God, love others. Categorically, I think this is the fruit Jesus is looking for here in chapter 11. Love God, love Israel, goes into the temple and finds them fruitless. Consider our first quotation. Our quotations, are, uh, the, the Isaiah and Jeremiah are going to flesh these two points out for us. Isaiah 56.7 says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. A house of prayer for all nations. That's curious. Solomon, in his dedication of the temple, actually prays that if a foreigner were to come to the house of the Lord, that the temple that Solomon had built, and they were to turn from God, and they were to encounter God at the presence of God in his temple that they would turn and they would be forgiven and they would be, uh, they, they would be able to engage in the presence of God and they would behold that Israel's God is the living God. This is why they had the, temp, or the, the court of the Gentiles. But Isaiah foresaw a day when those who were restricted from the temple would be fully welcome. The, the court of the Gentiles was the furthest point in the temple complex from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was supposed to be. Gentiles were excluded. There was actually a half wall that separated the court of the Gentile, the court of the women's, that said, if you enter here, you do so on pain of death. You will suffer the consequences. Right? There was a hard line. 
But listen to Isaiah's words in chapter 56. This is verses 1 and then 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants... Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That is the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. And I will make them joyful. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What's Isaiah saying? The temple was to be a place that brought the nations in. And one day, the nations would enter the temple. They would draw near to the presence of God. In Jesus, God's salvation has come. The word of God became flesh and walked among Israel. But what does he find? The court reserved for Gentiles is actually filled with commerce and religious activity. So that there's no room for the Gentiles. There's no room. The court of the Gentiles was the closest the nations could get to the presence of God. Yet the religious leaders, the merchants, the buyers, the money changers, they're filling it with fruitless religious fervor. There's no room for Gentiles. And how much do you want to bet that wasn't a mistake? After all, consider who the Gentiles were in Jesus' day. The Romans, their closest neighbors, inhabiting the city of Jerusalem as well. Romans are everywhere. They're current oppressors. Well, what about the Greeks? The Greeks were living in Egypt and all around, north and south of them. They're previous oppressors. Well, their closest neighbors, of course, were the Samaritans, those unwanted family members. And then out from there was the pagans who who were not like them, who didn't think as they thought, who didn't do as they do, didn't value what Israel valued. The religious leaders and the crowds were not producing fruit of loving others. They made no room for others. How about you? Are you making room for others to draw near to God? Are you making room in your life, in your schedule, in your day, in your conversation, in your relationships? Are you making room to draw others near to God, to invite them in? Or is it crowded out? By all your activity. Consider the second fruit, loving God. Jesus again uses the word of God from the prophet Jeremiah to expose Israel's false fruit of of empty worship. Traditionally, the market, what was going on in the court of the Gentiles, traditionally was happened on the Mount of Olives. But recently, the high priest had relocated most of the commerce into the temple. This was likely a strategy for the religious leaders to monopolize, regulate, and ultimately benefit from the lucrative business practices. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, called the high priest Annas the great money procure, right? Because of his policies, which gained the high priest family more control over the temple's fiscal affairs. Listen, it was necessary. It was necessary. It was actually necessary to buy ceremonially clean animals 
from pilgrims who are traveling from all over the Roman Empire, all over Israel, they can't bring ceremonially clean animals to offer in the temple. And they have to be offered in the temple. They have to be ceremonially clean. And so the book of Leviticus mandates that those that are, being, that are pilgrimaging to Jerusalem for the sacrifice, that they're provided with animals, that they could purchase their animals nearby. The, the issue isn't, the, the, the problem isn't that these businesses were actually going on, although there certainly was corruption in the business that was going on, but the real problem was where it was happening and the court reserved for Gentiles. The temple was supposed to be a place where people came to meet God's presence. Yet in Jesus' day, it had devolved into a place to do business and make religious transactions. The problem was God's presence never filled this temple. Certainly the temple was beautiful and certainly it was attractive, but it was still empty. It was empty. Israel had put their trust in the temple more than the presence of God. Going to the temple, it's easy. And interacting with the temple, well, that's simple. It's merely a transaction, right? Just slit the animal, offer it up. There, God, we're good. Just make your sacrifice. All right, God, we're good. I'm going to go do my thing. You do your thing. We're good. It's a transaction. But listen, seeking the presence, seeking the face, seeking the heart of God. That's much more difficult. Religious activity is always easier than relationship. Israel's religious leaders had turned the temple into a transaction, false worship, so that when the real presence of God did arrive in the temple as the Messiah King, he arrived alone and ignored. If your assurance before God comes from anything, anything other than Jesus, then it's false religion. It's false fruit. Israel had put their faith and trust in the leafy grandeur of the temple and refused to recognize the true presence of God in their midst. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. We talked last week about Jesus being our greatest threat. Now we see it. When the idols of our heart become the means by which we are justified and Jesus confronts those idols and questions our justification, then he's a threat. And we have two options, bow our knee or crucify him. Jesus exposed the false fruit of religious leaders were, trying, uh, were leading Israel to believe were true fruit. Jesus exposes the false fruit the religious leaders were leading Israel to believe was true fruit. But it all turned out to be false fruit. This leads me to my third and final point. Jesus condemns false fruit but produces good fruit. Verses 20 through 25 lead us back to the fruitless tree. Look at verses 20, 20 and 21. Mark says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, Rabbi, look! The tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus never explicitly said to his disciple, he, he never made this plain, the, the withered tree is Israel's worship at the temple. Jesus never said that. But Mark, 
through the use of his Markin sandwich, has shown us Jesus' cursing of the tree was really never about the tree, but about Israel's faith in an empty building. The temple was supposed to be the footstool of God's presence, but the presence of the Lord never filled this temple because even when it did, their hearts, and if we're to be honest, our hearts, never truly drew near. Israel had placed their faith in a building, a building that meant everything to them, everything. Jesus cleansed the temple not to restore right worship. He wasn't wasn't doing a reform. He was cleansing the temple with the intent of replacing it. God's presence never filled that temple. It was never the place, his presence was never in that place because God's presence came to Israel and comes to us In a person, in a person, Jesus is the place of God's presence. Listen to what Jesus teaches the disciples. Look at 22, uh, verses 22 and 23. Mark writes, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus is calling his disciples to put their faith not in the temple as Israel has done, to put their faith in God. Well, you might be thinking, what is that? How do you get that from, you know, this seems like you're supposed to have enough faith and you have enough faith you can move a mountain or mountains. But, but what I want you to catch is what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, whoever says to this mountain, this, not mountains, to this mountain. Where is he? He's on his way outside of, the, outside of the, the temple complex, up the Mount of Olives. He turns back and says, whoever says to this mountain, Mount Zion, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Jesus is judging the temple. He's judging Israel's heart of idolatry. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and he's calling his disciples to not put their faith in the mountain that will be destroyed, but in God who cannot be moved. God is the one who made the mount on which the temple was built. And it was God who called the Babylonians to destroy the first temple because of Israel's bad fruit. God is the one who will cause the destruction of this temple, this temple, at the hands of the Romans in less than 40 years. Jesus is saying, have faith in God. Because if you have faith in God, then you can let go of your idols. And you can cast them to the sea because they offer you nothing. Have faith in God. Jesus is calling his disciples to flee the condemned false fruit and to put their faith in God's presence that is in Jesus himself. To the Jews, the temple was everything. It was their identity, their pride, their heart, their hope. But Jesus came to replace the temple. The temple can't answer prayers, which is what Jesus teaches on a little further. The temple can't forgive your sins. Only Jesus can do that. And only Jesus is willing to do that. Our worship, our hope, our faith, our trust, and obedience... And anything other than Jesus can only ever, can only ever produce false fruit. Fruit that Jesus condemns and has come to destroy. 
So what is our response? How do we produce right and good fruit? Jesus teaches his disciples in a couple of days in the upper room the source of fruit that is pleasing to God and actually endures forever. You can't ever produce right fruit yourself. It's not possible. You can't produce it yourself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how good your deeds are, you cannot produce good fruit by yourself. You were never meant to. Listen to Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Therefore, verse 4, abide in me. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself... Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's not just once. Jesus just isn't saying, just pray a prayer. Just pray that prayer. Just just get baptized. After that, produce tons of fruit. Look, you can produce fruit, but you have to abide. It's not a one and done scenario. Abide, abide, abide. That's what you were made for. Whoever abides in me and I in him. It is he that bears much fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You're as good as a leafy dead tree. Jesus is the good vine. Abide in the vine. Ask God to prune, expose your false fruit that you might abide in him and bear much good lasting, eternal fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to judge. To judge our hearts and to expose our false fruit. Thank you that you're not fooled by our fancy, leafy displays of glory, of splendor. But God, you examine the heart. More than that, you rescue our heart. More than that, you give us new hearts. You quicken our hearts. You enliven our hearts so that our hearts might beat with your heart. That we might dwell in you daily. Lord, that that wouldn't just be a a far-off theological idea, but Lord, help us to know, help us to move towards, help us to abide in you, to delight in you, to walk in you, to act in you, to produce fruit, much fruit, eternal fruit that endures forever in you. God, we, um, yeah, we, we need you. We need you to expose our idolatry. We need you to expose uh, our, our, our false fruit, our, our leafy foliage that keeps our heart from being exposed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.